Okay. Well, it's good to see everyone here tonight. It's that time. I'm sure there'll be a few more bodies wander in here, but let's go ahead and uh, begin with prayer. Mr. Martin, since you're standing, would you mind opening us? Sure. Father, we do thank you for loving us, for taking care of us, for providing for our needs. We thank you for our class, for opening the Word of God and studying it to get more out of it. Thank you for all those things we for you each day. Thank you for the way you work at the university, work on our lives. And Father, we just give it all to you as far as what is accomplished and hopefully it will be for your honor. Okay, there's a couple of faces here tonight that have not been here in the past, so let me back up and have a running start into what we're doing for tonight. Otherwise, it may make no sense to uh, the the new folks, and uh, who knows, might make no sense to the rest of us either. But uh, we're talking about this, of course, class is on dispensationalism, which is a way of interpreting uh, the Bible. It's a way of, of seeing the biblical storyline. And uh, what we're talking about tonight, uh, and well, started last week and talking about tonight, is hermeneutics, or the, the, the way the Bible is studied. And uh, one of the hallmarks of the dispensational system is a what's sometimes called a literal hermeneutic. That is, we take the scriptures at face value and that uh, meanings can't change along the way. Of course, this becomes important when we're talking about the various covenants and the prophecies and the terms of scripture, uh, which which other systems uh, will redefine as, as biblical history unfolds, uh, such that... Uh, the word Israel, uh, even though there does seem to be a, a significant difference between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, there's a continuity, and so Israel must be the church. And so there's a there's a there's a forcing of of, of definitions such that these equal one another. Same with uh, uh, statements about the seed and about the land. Uh, land promise has been made to Israel, and uh, we come to the end of the uh, Old Testament and we say, hey, Israel didn't really get their land promise. Uh, certainly not the forever part of it, because there's there's Israel uh, pretty much dissolved as a nation. Uh, they de- they are not they're not dwelling in safety in the land. So, what's our prospect? Well, there's basically two options. Uh, the uh, uh, the covenant theologian says, okay, there is a new people of God that will get a land that is even greater. So the uh, people of God, which we just define as the church, will eventually receive the whole heavens, the new, he- the, the new earth, the new heavens and new earth, the new creation. The other option is, as the dispensationalists suggest, that Israel will again be reconstituted as a nation and will receive uh, the plot of land that had been promised to them historically. And so... So there's there's a number of different terms items uh, that are that uh, we, we we look at and we, we and we can't redefine them. And so what we talked about last week, we defined what we mean by literalism. Uh, we started out by saying literalism doesn't mean that there aren't figures of speech in the Bible. 
again, I've, I, I mentioned last time that uh, there's some, I, I, I've, been, I've been ridiculed myself uh, for believing in literalism because I believe that uh, when, when Paul called Herod uh, an old fox, that, that we dispensationalists think, oh, Herod was some sort of a furry little animal with a long fuzzy tail. Well, no, that's, that's not what we mean. We recognize that, there are, there, that terms uh, can be used in a figurative sense. And that's part of literal interpretation. We have we have figures of speech. We've got metaphors. We've got similes, and uh, and, and and other and other uh, various figures that we use on a regular basis. Uh, sometimes we don't even realize that we do it. I remember saying something, and I was teaching some Chinese folks in in, uh, in Saipan, and I I was using an illustration. I said my kids were making me climb the walls, and. and uh, they looked at me like, what, your kids were actually, you know, prodding me to climb a wall? They didn't, they didn't get it, because that doesn't translate. And that's, and that's part of normal language, and literal interpretation doesn't, doesn't preclude that possibility. Literalism is not the reduction of the basic unit of language into words rather than sentences, as sometimes said. It's not the denial of the analogy of faith or the comparison of scriptures with scriptures, uh, theological interpretation, which says, you know, sometimes when I, after I've, I've done my best exegetical work, I've come up with a meaning, and, you know, my theology says it can't possibly mean that. And so we go back and re-examine it and say, is there another possibility here uh, other than the one that you know seemed obvious to me at the time? So when we talk about a plain or literal interpretation, it doesn't mean that we're, uh, we're, we're, we're so rigid that we can't uh, admit the possibility of, of variant reading, variant understandings other than uh, what is most normal. So what did we say what? Well, we said there were four aspects to what literalism is. First, we said, was the univocal nature of language. Univocal, big word, simply means one voice. Uh, when we speak, uh, we mean one thing. Uh, of course, we said there's exceptions to that, of course. But there are puns, uh, which can mean more than one thing. But you can't have a, a language that operates on all puns. Uh, the, the language would very quickly fall apart. Uh, so it can only have one signification in one context. Now, words can have wide semantic ranges. It can mean many different things in many different contexts. But when I use a word tonight, I mean one thing by it. Uh, that, that's something of a, an axiomatic principle of language. I, I can't actually say that without assuming it. And the reason you understand me tonight is because you recognize that I am trying as best I can uh, to communicate clearly in sentences with one meaning. Now, at the end of the day, some of you might get different meanings than, than I intended. At the same time, I meant only one. And, and, and we assume the same thing is true of the scriptures. Uh, when we read the scriptures, uh, there is there's one meaning intended uh, by the author. Uh, of course, sometimes we miss it. It's not to say that we, we are, are flawless in, in our interpretation of the scriptures. But, this, but the author meant one thing. Secondly, we said uh, the jurisdiction of authorial intent. Who gets to decide what the meaning of the text is? Well, it's not me that gets to decide what the meaning of the text is. It's the author that gets to decide what the meaning of the text is. And he means what he says. Okay, There's a, there's a little principle of 
of hermeneutics uh, uh, made by Fian Stewart, who, who wrote a little book on how to read your Bible for all it's worth. And they say, a text can never mean what it never meant. And I think it's, it's true. A text can only mean what it means, what it meant originally to the author. Uh, we, we are not free, after the fact, to change the meaning and make it mean something different than what it originally intended. Thirdly, we said there's a unitary authorship of Scripture. The reason I say this, it's really a restatement of number two, but it, it draws on the, on the observation that um, if we look at the Scriptures, Scriptures are a unique piece of literature in the sense that it is written by God and communicated through us through the miracle of inspiration through human authors. But that does not mean that it's got two authors who are who are perhaps sparring with another with one another along the way. They mean exactly the same thing. That's and that's really what the definition of inspiration is. When the scripture writers wrote, they were writing the words of God. Okay? And so it's impossible for God to mean one thing back behind the scenes and the human author to mean something else when they wrote down the words that we can only find out later. Uh, that's just, again, it's normal understanding of language. And then finally, a textually based locus of meaning. So how do we find out what the meaning is? How do we get into the mind of the author that gave us this meaning? Well, we find it from the words he used. Okay? Is that why each book of the Bible has basically the same uh, well, you, you, you mean they, they sound like the same author wrote them? Yeah, like usually when you read a book from one author, like, you know, and another author, they, they can sound completely different where they sound. That's yeah. probably more the product of the translators than it is the original authors. Uh, because the original authors did speak with their own vocabulary. So so Peter, as a, as a sort of a rough-hewn fisherman, would likely not have had nearly the vocabulary of, say, a physician like Luke. Uh, and so they, they don't write. In fact, if you, if you get to know Greek and Hebrew, you recognize there's a world of difference between the authors of how they write. But in our modern translations, uh, there is, there's an attempt to make it sort of read uniformly. So that's probably there where we get the uniformity more than the original authors. There's, I think there's a little bit more of a rich, rich texture when you read it in the original. Yeah, can, can you get the original? <laughs> what? Is there a way of getting it in the original? Like, yeah, well, we have to agree. Yeah, we've got Greek and Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, come to seminary. <laughs> sure, yeah. But, yeah, so... Right, and so the closer we get is, and hopefully we get good, and we're getting better English translations, and I, I think we uh, we we get we get closer uh, with the with the better translations that we have. But the meaning of the t- the scriptures are in the words. Okay, uh, words and sentences are not secret repositories of hidden cloaked messages that are only available through some sort of a code. Uh, I know there's. So these code movies, and they're all cool, you know, the, the Da Vinci Code and other things like that. Uh, but, that, but that's not how the scriptures work. There's no code to unlocking it. The meaning of the text is right there in the words, okay? Um, in fact, we, we cannot look at other sources uh, to tell us what the meaning of the text is. The, the, the words themselves are what tell us what the meaning is. We, we cannot, for instance, you know, I think sometimes the... Uh, uh, there's, a, there's an idea, and I think it's a very uh, a well-meaning and even pious idea that 
uh, you know, when, if I read the read the Bible and uh, I'm really in tune with the Holy Spirit and I've prayed a lot before I open my Bible, that I'm going to get more meaning out of the text. So that's that's not true because the meaning's right there in the words. Now, if in fact you are reading with with the wisdom that the Holy Spirit supplies, He's going to allow you to see in your own life where that is going to affect how you how you behave, how you act, how you respond to it. It will it will make you more appreciative of it, more welcoming of the scriptures, and cause you to be uh, to to want to apply it. I mean, the Holy Spirit does that for us. But the meaning, the meaning's in the words. If it's not, then the Bible becomes really unnecessary uh, because we could we could get that that those vibes from the Holy Spirit even if we didn't have a Bible. Okay, so the, the meaning is in the words. The application is 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 the purview of the Holy Spirit. So uh, we we can't uh, come along and say, okay, there was there was meaning there that nobody else was able to spot until I read it here with these, these special Holy Spirit lenses. Uh, now the meaning's right in the words, and uh, and so we we are not free then uh, uh, to to appeal to the Holy Spirit and say, you know, I've got a new meaning of the of the text. That wasn't there originally, but the Holy Spirit told it to me, and so I get to use that now. That's, that's, that's not a responsible way of reading the Scriptures. All of this, of course, is, is so that we recognize that we can't redefine the key terms of Scripture, like covenants and promises and nations, Israel, seed, uh, uh, land, and some of these critical elements that appear uh, interspersed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. We can't redefine them later. Okay? So all that, now we're caught up to where we ended last time. Uh, we'll, we talk now about the use of the Old Testament and the New, which is probably one of the most difficult issues here, because sometimes when you read the New Testament, it seems like the New Testament authors assign meanings to the Old Testament I just don't see that. How, how did they come up with that? Did, are they using the same Bible I'm using? Are they same, using the same hermeneutical technique that I'm using? Now, because even though we, we, we gave those rules here for, for a normal, literal translation, if, in fact, we come to the New Testament and the New Testament authors say, you know, that's not the way to read the Bible, then we have to follow the New Testament authors in, 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 in what they do. So the question is, do the New Testament authors give us the liberty to redefine terms, to, to expand reference to promises and prophecies and such, or replace uh, Israel with church, or land with the new, new heavens and the new earth, or the, the seed of Abraham with all believers everywhere? Uh, is, it, is it appropriate to do that? Well, let's see if we can't... Uh, uh, look to see how sometimes the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. And I think one of the critical things here is looking at the, the, the ideas of prophecy, type, and analogy. And I think if we can parse the differences between these, I think perhaps we'll be better on our way to understanding what's meant uh, in the Old Testament. Prophecy, first of all, is exactly what it sounds like. So if this, this is one that uh, there's no surprises here. It's a self-conscious prediction. Now, the, the Old Testament author says this is going to happen someday. 
It's an authorially intended advanced revelation that plainly divulges a future event. So that's that's what I mean by a prophecy. It purposely looks forward to, demands an event which is to be its fulfillment. It intrinsically, in its words, grammar, syntax, looks forward in time. That's what a prophecy is. This is the simplest uh, uh, device here that we're going to be talking about tonight. and it's, it's, it's everything you expect it to be. The next two are the complicated ones. Um, next one, well, let, let's go to number C, letter C first, just because um, the type is the, this the most compli- complex one and most difficult to, to uh, parse out here. So an analogy. An analogy is a later observation of a simple point of resemblance between two persons or events. This is the most general term of the terms we're going to look at tonight. The New Testament author's observation of resemblance may serve as a harmonizing principle, as an instance of illustration, or a simple parallel. Okay? Uh, Like, for instance... You know, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay, don't don't get hung up on on thinking of that as a prophecy. You know, snake equals Jesus. It, it just it just doesn't. It's not it's not right. What what the author is simply saying, like Christ in this in this case, is saying that there is something that happened in the Old Testament. And there's going to be something in the New Testament that's going to happen that's a lot like it. Okay, uh, there's 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 no there's no implication here that Moses was some sort of making some sort of a latent prophecy uh, that he was holding up this snake and thinking this is Jesus, this is Jesus. Uh, there's a comparison. It's it's something that was on a pole and people looked at it and lived. Okay, just as, as we do today, we look at the cross and see Christ upon it, we believe, and we live. And so there's a comparison to be made. But there's nothing that Moses was intending here when he put this event into the Old Testament to, to, to be forward-looking. It was, a hist- it was backward-looking. He was telling us what happened uh, at, at the historical event. Okay, So an analogy is a backward-looking implication, application, illustration. There's nothing in the original to let us know that the author meant anything more than a historical event. The one in the middle is probably the, the most complicated one, and it's hardest to identify. Let's see if we can we can put this out here. A type. Got a definition here. A person, event, recorded as historical fact with no intrinsic reference to the future. There's nothing inherent in it that anticipates a future completion. However... God providentially and intentionally placed this personal event within the stream of revelation as a complex, multifaceted point of future theological comparison. It's really only identifiable as God tells us that it's a type. There's, I, I think there's very few of these in Scripture. Adam is described here as a type of Christ. A Christ. So there are multiple points of comparison to be made between Adam and Christ. Uh, he is a he's a representative of humanity. Uh, he is given he is given a similar test, just as Adam and Christ were given almost identical tests 
where the, where the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life were were, were used to try to manipulate both both figures. Adam collapses. Christ doesn't. Uh, we we uh, we find that the, they they stand as as representatives for their respective humanities, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of points of comparison here. So much so that we have a first Adam and a and a second Adam. Okay, that that we, we can we can say in fact the scriptures call him the second Adam in Corinthians. Okay, so that, that that's why we say there's there's identification of a comparison, and it would seem. Uh, even in the Old Testament, that that if, if we were to ask Moses, okay, hey, if, if someone came along who was a second Adam, would this make sense to you? I think Moses would say yes. That that would make that would make an enormous amount of sense. It's not as though he was necessarily prophesying a second Adam, but he was putting something in there that sort of begged for a completion. Okay. He didn't know exactly what that completion would look like, per se. But he was putting something in there that begged for a completion. Okay. Now, this is not an affirmation of a dual intention between the divine and human. It's not as though uh, God was standing above Moses and saying, I'm going to put this in here. I'm going to prophesy about Jesus here. Moses doesn't know about it, but I'm going to prophesy about Jesus. No, that, that's not what is happening. This is this is just simply a a, 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 state, a, a a placement of some sort of a historical stanchion here that's going to be a ready point of reference. It seems to be more deliberate than say the snake in the wilderness, which seems, of course, there's nothing incidental in, in all of the scripture. But when, when 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 we see the comparison made here, that seems to be something of an incidental reference. Oh, just like that happened. So also this 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 is going to happen, and so, and so that's why I say it's it's hard to really distinguish between type and analogy. But I'd like to suggest that analogies are much more common in in the New Testament literature uh, than than types are. Okay, does, it, does that make sense? Does that follow? Do, do you you catch the differences? Perhaps we'll see it a little bit more once we get to this next point here, and that is the meaning of fulfillment. It seems that all three of these, analogy, type, and prophecy, can be referred to in the scriptures as being fulfilled. Now, we tend to think of fulfillment as only working with direct prophecy. This was prophesied, this is fulfilled. But apparently... Uh, when, the, when the New Testament writers used the word fulfillment, they didn't think in quite that tight of terms. Uh, they could talk about fulfillment of things that you and I would scratch our heads about and say, that, that doesn't seem like a fulfillment. Let's, let's look at this. Fulfillment is very simply the completion of a prophecy, a type, or an analogy. Charles Dyer, who's done a really good job working with these, has conclusively proven that the fulfillment formula as used in the New Testament, and I think that's a a comprehensive list of all fulfillment uh, uh, statements in the New Testament, is used for all three of these concepts, with dominant usage split nearly evenly between prophecy and analogy. Let me see if I can point out a a couple of these uh, so we're not just thinking in theory here. Let's look at uh, Hosea 11.1. Sorry, you have to break out your Bibles tonight. Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, 
and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went away from from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images, etc., etc., etc. So it's, it's something of a historical statement about the nation of Israel. I loved Israel. I rescued them from Egypt, and still they were not true to me. Okay. Now, if we look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, we find that this verse is quoted with fulfillment language. This is, of course, the story of when uh, Herod was trying to kill the uh, children, the, the Hebrew children in Bethlehem, in order to eliminate this one who was born king of the Jews. And uh, as he was contemplating what he was going to do, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, left for Egypt, when he, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt... I called my son. Well, you look at us. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Okay. My son here in Matthew 2 is a reference to Jesus Christ coming in obedience out of Egypt in order to fulfill his mission. In Hosea 11, this was a historical reference to a disobedient nation who was coming out of Egypt, you know, by means of the Exodus. Okay, across the, uh, you know, across the uh, Red Sea and all that. Okay, so how it doesn't look like a prophecy to me, and it's not a prophecy. It's it's a historical recounting of what happened to Israel. So how is it that the fulfillment language can be used? Well, like I say, non-dispensationalists will come along and say, well, we find out that it is really appropriate for us to redefine terms. Okay, it is it is acceptable for the New Testament authors to come along and say, yeah, it says Israel, but it really means church. Yeah, it says the land of Israel and gives all kinds of specific parameters for the land, but really what it means is the new earth. Okay? And so on and so forth. But as as Dyer has suggested here, the meaning of fulfill, it, it, rather than doing that, I think we can look at the meaning of the word fulfillment and say probably what is meant here is this is just the completion of a comparison. Okay, It's not a fulfillment of a prophecy per se, but a completion of a comparison. There is a comparison. Israel was brought out of Egypt. Jesus was brought out of Egypt. And that's where the comparison ends. Right here in the same context, you have a very similar statement here. Herod realized, we're in Matthew still, that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what had, was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Okay, here's this fulfillment language again. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. 
Okay, so the comparison here is, perhaps you have a reference Bible here that says, look back to Jeremiah 31.15. So you go back there and you discover that it's again a historical recounting. Okay, a voice will be heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Well, this is a reference to the Babylonian captivity. It's not the people of Bethlehem who are who are weeping here. It's the people of Israel who have lost their children uh, due to the ravages of war and the and the deportation of the people of Israel to Babylon. So, how is this a fulfillment? Well. If we're thinking in terms of fulfillment as being narrowly restricted to a prophecy, what we're going to have to do is say, okay, the New Testament authors saw prophecies where the rest of us can't see them. And they are given this special privilege of redefining terms. Okay, Different people, different mothers, different city. What's the only point of comparison? Mothers crying because their children died. Okay, And so... so uh, Matthew draws attention here to the fact that there is a comparison to be made with the mothers crying in Jesus' day and the mothers crying in the in the days of the Babylonian captivity, that, and that's where that's where the comparison ends. It's not a prophecy of these these women who will be crying. It's just a simple point of comparison, and uh, it seems that that is a fairly common way to use this word this this fulfillment language. Um, so again, we've got two options. We can either redo, we can either find out that we have the liberty to redefine words, or we can take this word fulfillment and say perhaps that word fulfillment is a little bit more flexible than we've tended to see it. And I, and I feel much more comfortable taking that word uh, fulfillment and, and finding in it a gr- little bit more flexibility than actually taking these words and completely redefining them. Does that make sense, Stefan? Okay. The New Testament authors, I think, uh, keep them going here, and Jesus himself also showed a great fondness for analogy, frequently expressing their own thoughts in the words of Scripture. We do the same thing, right? You know, something happens and, you know, woe is me. <laughs> well, what do we mean? Oh, we're, we're, we're fulfilling a prophecy that Isaiah made when he was in the throne room of God and, and saw the Lord high and lifted up. And so we're fulfilling a prophecy. No, no. We're just saying there's some sort of a point of comparison between my situation and Isaiah's. It's probably a a woefully inadequate comparison, but hey, we sometimes use that kind of a language to to express the fact, you know, I've done something wrong or I'm in trouble, okay, and we'll say, woe is me. And so we speak in the language of Scripture without formally saying that that's a prophecy. And I think the, the scripture writers did the same thing. Yeah, question before. I don't want to get off my tangent here, but just one one thing that uh, has bugged me reading in the Gospels is that it uh, talks about the ministry of Jesus. He's going along and he's ministering to the people and all. And then all of a sudden it says, and this fulfills the prophecy, he bore our sins. You know, you know okay, I, I have the same reaction. What? You know, Jesus didn't bear our sins until he went to the cross. How could that be talking about his 
ministry during the three years. You know, I forget the reference, but you, you probably remember that. Yeah, there's a number. Is that, of is that kind of just a point of comparison? Yeah, I, I think in that one, probably what we're, we're trying to... Isaiah said he's going to bury, bear our sorrows and carry our, our griefs. And, it, and, and my understanding here is that in a non-redemptive sense, he was bearing with the, the temporal griefs of the people he faced. Um, and, and I think that's something that the Messiah is going to do. He's going to he's going to he's going to solve minor problems. He's going to solve the temporal uh, uh, frailties and, and, and. So the word bear has different definitions. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that because I think of bear as the when our substitutionary atonement. Right, uh, right. Yeah, and I. But I think that that's a legitimate way of saying he does he he bore them in it in a redemptive sense, but he also bore them in a non-redemptive sense. Okay. Right. To me, that that's the explanation of that one. Okay. But uh, but again, this this fulfillment language is used fairly liberally, liberally yeah. by the by the New Testament authors, and in a way that we really we look at that today. That's not that's not fulfillment. But if we think of the term as having a broader meaning, then that's an appropriate okay. use of those terms. Okay. I think, um, uh, you know, Matthew 22, actually Psalm 22, a very familiar psalm to us, and uh, one that's, uh, I'll say right now, it's a difficult psalm to read um, and, and understand what, it, what exactly the point of it is. You'll hear the words here and say, oh, I know what this is about. This is this is a prophecy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, what's that? That's a, is that a prediction of Christ on the cross? Well, maybe. There's a number of these in this, in this, in this chapter. It says here, I, uh, you know, um, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Oh, there, there's the words of the thieves on either side of, of Christ on the cross. It said, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint, which could easily happen in a crucifixion. Um, my heart is turned to wax, melted away, probably a, a, something of a hyperbole. Some have tried to say, well, that's what happened when they stuck the, the sword into his side, that his, his heart had actually... Uh, become almost watery and it basically exploded and ran out the side. I, I think that's probably trying to make the, the psalm walk on all fours here. Probably not really what's intended here. Then my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Well, that happened on the cross. He asked for a drink twice. They pierced my hands and my feet. Actually, that's a, that's a that reading there is, is a d- disputed one, but if that's what it is, it sounds like crucifixion. I count all my bones. Okay, well, after a scourging, it would be likely that, sh- that you could at least see some of the bones of Christ, li- quite literally, you would actually see the raw bones there. And so on and so forth. You can actually see number, and you say, okay, this must be a messianic prophecy about Matthew, uh, of, of, of the crucifixion. And there is some, some debate among, among those who uh, interpret that psalm. But there is a good chance that at least on many of these, it's not intended to be a prophecy, but rather a statement that Jesus is using these psalms as we all ought to. 
looking at a psalm with which my situation relates and using and, and speaking to God in the words of the psalm. Okay. Uh, I look at Psalm 22 and it says it's a psalm of David. And as you read through the psalm, you actually find some other things, you know, that don't seem to fit the crucifixion, like, please God, save me from death. And then at the end, thank you for saving me from death. I will, I, I'm going to the, I'm going to the uh, assembly now in, at the temple to, re, to rejoice that you have rescued me from death. I was like, oh, um, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the crucifixion anymore. Okay. So probably what we have here is not so much a fulfillment of prophecy, but actually a model of how we're supposed to use the Psalms. We're, we're, we're to relate with the psalmist. Uh, in fact, I think probably more, more often than, than not. There, there's a lot of laments in the, in the in the Psalms. I think we relate with them even more sometimes than many of our modern hymns. There just there just aren't uh, there aren't a lot of modern hymns uh, that uh, give us the the uh, sentiment of lament, and yet that's the most dominant that's the most dominant type of song that's out there and, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be too critical here but I think we, we do well to express some more of our thoughts in songs because that's I think that's often the way we feel right when, when, when we think about our relationship with God and our standing in light it's a lament and, uh, inst- and uh, you know Sometimes we come to church with, with grins on our faces, and there's a there's a there's a, a pouting inside. Um, and so, anyway, uh, that's that's all beside the point. Um, psalm 22 is probably Christ using the psalm as as a as an appropriate hymn, and and saying I relate with the psalmist. Okay, and so we so we have so this this idea of fulfillment as being a sort of a, a window that allows us to reinterpret Old Testament prophecies or statements uh, so that uh, so that there can be great continuity between the Testaments and with the people of God and with the land and with the seed and all that. Uh, I, I wonder if it doesn't fall flat a bit uh, in, as, as, we, as we look at it. So, the importance then, in summary, of a consistent grammatical historical interpretation of the scriptures, I think it's necessary to the authority of the Bible. Okay? If, as Carnell notes, he's a he's a figure um, associated with uh, historic premillennialism. He says that prophecy is not self-interpreting. Okay, in other words, when you read prophecy, you can't possibly come up with the meaning of what what it means. So, I guess. Until the New Testament was written, everybody who read the uh, prophecies were scratching their said, I get what this means. But that's, that seems to be the understanding of, of many within uh, the non-dispensational community. We can't understand these Old Testament prophecies, and perhaps we can't, we still can't, under, let's, let's just sort of discard them, we'll just, we'll just sort of put them in, we'll let them stay in the Bible, but we won't really spend much time looking at them, especially in detail, uh, we'll let them just sort of play out on their own. Well, the meaning of the Old Testament texts were obscured until the arrival of the New Testament. Old Testament saints were denied access to their truths. The Old Testament was an obscure, confusing, deceptive body of literature until the New Testament came along to explain it. More ominously, if we extrapolate from this idea, it suggests that the New Testament might be equally as incompre- incomprehensible as the Old. 
And, and, and let me, let's see if we can go there here. You know, um, uh, for, for instance, uh, uh, we might, uh, I have an example here somewhere. You know, there's uh, statements in the New Testament such as, whosoever believes in me will have eternal life. That's a great promise, right? Whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life. But what if we interpret that like some non-dispensationalists say we should interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament? Perhaps that passage would say something like this. The memory of all those who believe in me will be preserved forever. Well, that's not exactly what I was expecting. (laughs) I wanted to live forever. Not that my memory would be preserved forever. I wanted to live forever, and that's what I thought the prophecy said. Whoever believes in me will have everlasting life. And, and, and I think we've, we've really set up ourselves some pretty bad precedents if we go ahead and uh, uh, say as, that as a, as a hermeneutical principle, we can reassign uh, terms and, and, and redefine them. Okay. Secondly, it's necessary to the hermeneutical objectivity of the Bible. Without a consistent literal hermeneutic, there's no restraint on the meaning of a text. The identification of what is literal, figurative, allegorical, subject to change reference, is wrested from the text and its inspired authors and placed in the hands of fallible interpreters, who all too often impose their personal agenda on the text. It's little wonder that there is scarcely any agreement between covenant theologians concerning predictive prophecy. For instance, I, I, I looked up this week the, uh, uh, the the statement here that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together in the millennial kingdom. Okay, well the dispensationalists are all pretty much agreed on what that means. It means that during the millennial kingdom, wolves and sheep will be able to lie down together uh, without without any uh, fear of repercussion on the part of the sheep. So I, so I looked up a, a, a number of of commentaries written by non-dispensationalists. Okay? A fellow by the name of Golden Gay says, the rich and the powerful will coexist with the poor and the weak. That's what it means. Calvin says that there will be peace between believers in the church. Uh, another says uh, there will be peace between believers and God. Another says there will be peacefulness in the eternal state. And one fellow who couldn't make heads or tails of it, said it's just highly poetic language. Okay? Okay. Well, there, there's, a simple, there's a simple reading of that that makes a lot of sense here. And authorial intent would, would, would let us... It, the objectivity of the scriptures is maintained when we say it means what it says, rather than trying to assign your meanings to it. Okay. And then it's also necessary to the preservation of authorial intent. Those who originally heard the prophets had a demonstrably literal interpretation in mind. You know, I, I think particularly of, of Abraham when he when Christ when God says to him, "You're going to have a seed, and it's going to and it's and you're going to have and it's going to be preserved forever." And Abraham says, um, "You got me confused with somebody else." I'm a hundred years old. I have no kids. Well, why did he say that? Well, because he understood that prophecy to be, you're going to, out of your own loins, have a child. And that child is going to 
blossom forth into a nation. Okay? And so he says, you, I, that's, this can't happen to me. I'm 100 years old. And so what does, what's God's answer? Oh, that's right, yeah. What I mean is a spiritual seed. No, he says, no, no, no. Your estate will not go to your servant Eliezer, he says. Believe it or not, and apparently he didn't for a while. Believe it or not, your wife, Sarah, who's 90, she's actually going to have a son. And that's part of the, uh, the, uh, the miracle that affirms the covenant for, for Abraham, right? And, and so, so Abraham's very concerned about a literal, literal fulfillment of this prophecy. And God is too. And he, he gives an assurance here that, it, yeah, it's going to be your son. And lo and behold, Sarah has, has a child in her old age named him Isaac. Okay? And from Isaac, we see the whole, the whole nation of Israel uh, come forth. Okay? And, and, and we find this all the way through. Uh, the old, that's just one example. But as, as we look through the Old Testament, we find that there is a, a longing for a land. A longing for peace in the land. A longing for a Messiah who's going to do specific things. A longing for, for a, 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 a kingdom with specific descriptors. Let's say there's going to be agricultural success. And there's going to be streams in the desert. And there's going to be showers of blessing in desert places. And they're looking for all of these things. And they're anticipating these things. And then to come along later and say, not... What in the, all that's spiritual. That's that's you, you are looking for something physical. Uh, we're, you're just going to get something spiritual. Now it's going to be something spectacular, but it's not what we promised. Okay. So I think it's necessary the preservation of authorial intent. The authors meant something. The the original hearers understood the author, authors to mean something, and then for us to come along later and say that's not what they meant uh, seems to uh, really destroy uh, the objectivity of authorial intent. So does, does that make sense? Okay. Okay. The next section, if you remember, back about eight weeks ago, we've already done the law section. So skip ahead in your notes to Roman numeral 7, which I don't know what page it is for you, probably something like 57. I was going to say that. Okay. So we're moving ahead now to dispensationalism, Israel, and the church. Uh, we don't have time to get uh, real real far on this, but I want to at least get a running start into next week uh, because ideally, we've, well, let's see, we've got 16 pages left in two weeks, so we have to do eight pages a, a week, which is which is a tall order for us. So, so, Roman numeral seven. Roman numeral seven. I think it would be Roman numeral nine. Oh, that's right. You you re reassigned my Roman numerals, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, it's. Yes, so page 57. Dispensationalism, Israel, and the church. Sorry about that. Actually, I I should say, I I took out two sections of these. These are are effectively my seminary notes. And I took out two two big sections, and I forgot to renumber them. And uh, and that did correctly fix my notes here. So, <laughs> so, so it is Roman numeral nine then, if, if that's what it says. You can do that for extra credit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so the distinction now between Israel and the church is really what we're getting after. So there's really no point that more exemplifies the hermeneutical differences between dispensationalism and covenant theology than this one, the doctrine of the church. Uh, Charles Ryrie calls it the most basic theological test of whether or not a man is a dispensationalist. Uh, if, if, if you say that the church and Israel are the same thing, pretty much puts you into the Reformed or Covenant uh, camp. If you say that they are separate and distinct uh, organisms or organizations, that pretty much puts you into the dispensational camp. Okay, uh, So he describes the distinction between Israel and the church as the essence of dispensationalism. So we talked about, you know, we went through a whole list of differences between uh, is, uh, dispensationalism and covenant theology. This probably looms as the largest. Okay. For covenant theology, the church and Israel are a single group comprising the whole people of God in all ages who have been saved through the one continuing covenant of grace. Dispensationalism regards the church as a distinct body with a distinct relationship to Christ and the kingdom. Now, all dispensationalists are not the same. In fact, there's been something of a progression in the history of dispensationalism. Let me just put, point that out to you, uh, just so you recognize where dispensationalists have been and where they are today. Uh, because oftentimes, uh, critics of dispensationalism will point back to the earliest uh, uh, expressions of dispensationalism and say you're a bunch of morons um, when there has been quite a bit of evolution that's going on. Okay, Prior to the 1950s, the distinction between Israel and the church was largely couched in absolute terms. The church was the heavenly people of God. Israel was the earthly people of God. In fact, they pretty much remain separate even into the eternal state. Okay, Israel gets their, gets their promised land, they get the new earth. Uh, but the spiritual people of God, the church, they're raptured up, they go to heaven, they live in heaven for eternity. So church is in heaven eternally, Israel's on the new earth eternally, and they pretty much don't have any, any interaction at all. Okay, so that, that's, that's sort of the uh, uh, one of the early expressions of dispensationalism. I don't know anybody who actually believes that anymore, but it's, it's constantly sort of shoved into, into our faces as what we believe when uh, very few of us do anymore. During the 50s and 60s, this sharp distinction softened quite a bit uh, with uh, uh, Alva J. McLean, uh, Charles Ryrie, uh, the leaders of Dallas Seminary and Grace Seminary, respectively, taking the lead in diminishing what they expressed as a platonic demarcation. If you know, if you knew anything about uh, uh, Dr. McCune, he would always he would always decry Platonism in the church. And it took us a while to figure out what he meant, and that was basically the idea that there's spiritual is good, physical is bad. Okay. Um, and so they and so they and they and they stay apart from each other. Okay, there is a so there's a merging this this platonic dualism of physical bad, spiritual good that was sort of erased, and these groups were were brought together, not in an absolute sense, but they certainly had interaction, particularly during the millennial kingdom and such. Okay, so the distinctions, the character, the function, destiny of the two people groups. Uh, the uh, Israel and the church persists even into the eternal state. We're going to see that in Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible. The distinction of sphere was considerably relaxed. You know, it, there, there's interaction between Old Testament and New Testament saints. They live together, and apparently there's some 
I, I don't, it's hard to know exactly how it's going to happen, but apparently there's some way that we can we can go back and forth between heaven and earth, in the, in, the, in perhaps in the millennium and certainly in the eternal state. Exactly the details of that that they're not forthcoming, uh, but there's there's no reason to think that we're going to be permanently segregated from Old Testament saints. Well, Darby especially, Darby. But, 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 okay. but Schofield did maintain much of that distinction, too. It, it, it's not as though it softened, you know, suddenly with uh, Chafer, uh, with, with Ryrie and, and McLean, but it, but it softened appreciably with them. So there's something of a continuum. Uh, but yes, definitely Darby, and then also uh, Schofield to, to, a, to perhaps a lesser degree, but, but certainly was in that same category. Okay. Later, during the 90s, progressive dispensationalism came along with its understanding that the church participates in all of Israel's promises and covenants and in their kingdom, which have typically been points of distinction uh, for, for traditional dispensationalists. You know, Israel has its promises. Israel has its covenants. Israel has its kingdom. Those aren't for the church, per se. Those are for Israel. That's how the traditional dispensationalist has understood it. Uh, but the progressive dispensationalists have softened the di- difference between Israel and the church still further. Uh, while not eliminating all distinctions, many progressive dispensationalists are predictably comfortable calling the church the new Israel. In fact, I give you an example here of one who claims to be a dispensationalist but calls the church the new Israel. So perpetuation of the distinction between Israel and the church beyond the millennium is rare among progressives. So during the millennium, the, the distinction between Israel and the church is maintained. But typically, if you look at progressive dispensationalism, when it comes to an eternal state, there's no distinction at all between New Testament saints and Old Testament saints are just sort of one glob. Okay? But as we're going to see in, in, in Revelation, that's not the case. Okay? So, next week when we come together, you're getting six, six extra minutes tonight. Don't blow it, every, don't blow it all in one place. Uh, but we're going to start here talking about some of the distinctions between Israel and the church, and uh, particularly uh, the relationship of the church uh, to the kingdom. So Wes's question has been burning all semester. Uh, we'll try and address that next week for you. Sounds, sound good, Wes? <laughs> He's tried to bring this up uh, about four or five times. But, uh, well, well, in my reading, it's coming across... <laughs> well, yeah, you still... Keep, certainly, I, I understand. I just came across Romans chapter 14, you know, and it's talking about meat. Kingdom you know, of God is not eating. Meat. And all of a sudden he goes and said, oh, by the way, the don't think about the future. Oh, yeah, I was talking about present. Okay, and then goes back <laughs> to me, you know. And it's like, okay, if you think that way, it's almost like you're saying, oh, the, the future. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted myself. Let's go back to the present. And that's, he's I not doing have, that. I shouldn't have drawn attention to that. <laughs> Right so we're, so we're going to look at we're going to look at some of those those problem texts because some of the texts of the New Testament seem to put the kingdom all future, but then others 
seem to suggest that there is something of participation of the church today. So we'll we'll look through a good number of those texts next time and see if we can't come to some conclusions. So that's that's the plan for next time. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. We'll see you next week.